Okay, let's jump into the text. I would like to introduce my little brother-in-law, Tion. He's going to read for us. One, two, one, two. Let's get this guy going. Not yet. Can you project? Hello. Oh, there it is. There it is. Sorry. Um, All right. He's going to read us. It's a big one. Settle in. 10 all the way to 23. Yeah. Uh, My slides are wrong. You really confuse me on how to say Philippines. Okay. All right. Bear with me, guys. Uh, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any way and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in (laughs) in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, When I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tion. Give him a round of applause, people. Let's go. Good job, bro. So, that was a lot. I would like to focus on and anchor the most, the most, the most of the time available today on the portion that I've highlighted in green, which is really about contentment. So, a good place to start is, what is contentment? And one dictionary defines contentment as the state of being mentally or emotionally satisfied with things as they are. Today, it is rare that we find anyone who is truly and fully content with his or her condition in life. And our culture breeds this rampant sense of discontentment. I'm still ringing on the mic if we could work on reducing that. Can I get the next slide as well, AJ? Okay, good. It's just it's throwing me off. <laughs> Don't worry about you guys. Uh, in fact, our economy thrives on that very thing, this intentionally manufactured endless dissatisfaction of the American people, the unrelenting and oppressive necessity to have the latest and greatest and to keep up. It's called competitive consumerism. Well, the Bible has a good amount to say on the idea of contentment in relation to consumerism and being satisfied with what we have, with who we are, and with what we're called to. Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, 
what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes, taken from Matthew 6? Simply put, Jesus instructs us to be content with what we have. More, he has given us a direct command and therefore full permission not to worry about the things of the world. He adds, for the pagans, unbelievers, run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Also taken from Matthew 6. See, it's not that God doesn't want us to have these things. He wants you to have clothes. He definitely wants me to have clothes because he does not want me walking around naked up here. He wants you to have food. He knows that you need stuff, right? Stuff isn't bad. Stuff isn't the problem, but it's the position of all these things, particularly in relation to Jesus and his kingdom, that's important. And as usual, Jesus' words pack a punch, and we could even say that the lack of contentment is sinful, putting us in the same category as those who don't know God, the pagans that run after stuff. The thing is, we shouldn't look like pagans. Our lives shouldn't look like those who don't know God. Our lives should, and there's a constant invitation for them to look visibly, obviously different, exuding this quality called contentment. And I think that within contentment lies a tremendous amount of freedom, satisfaction, and joy. Why is it that Jesus wants us to be content? It strikes me as an optimal state of being, wanting for nothing, being totally satisfied and at peace with how things are. Doesn't that sound pretty good? But what if things are not so great? What if how things are is really tough? Well, Paul, the man who wrote Philippians, was a man who suffered and went without the comforts of life more than most of us could ever imagine. He has a really nice laundry list in 2 Corinthians of all the things that have happened to him, the negative things or the more challenging things, over the course of his ministry, and it is an impressive resume. Like, he should be dead for all the things that have happened to him. Next slide. The writer of Hebrews adds, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And yet, people, we, continue to seek after more of the things of the world, never content with our lot. And the slogan, he with the most toys wins, could be used to epitomize our country's craving for more and more stuff. But is it really any better at the top? Is the grass greener? Is consumption a valid route to contentment? King Solomon, one of the wisest and arguably richest men who have ever lived, who had it all, said this. 
Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. That's from a man who had it all. And the state of craving that never satisfied, that desperately pouring into the bucket that never fills, i.e. discontentment, is a nasty state of being. An old English writer from the 1600s writes, discontent is like ink poured into water, which fills the whole fountain full of blackness. And it casts a cloud over the mind, and it renders us more occupied about the evil which disquiets than about the means of removing it. The biblical instruction that we just read in Hebrews, be content with what you have, suggests that believers are to put their trust and their confidence in God, not stuff or success, knowing that he is the source and the giver of all good things, that he knows that you need these things and he will provide them, but get the priority right. Get the order of them right. Put them in the right place in your heart. And that will position us to be better as disciples. You see, contentment matters not only because it's the fruit of having our eyes and our hearts fixed on Jesus and his way, but it also puts us in a state of being that is overtly different to the world around us. And that, in and of itself, is a powerful testimony. It also positions us to be effective disciples by removing a huge swath of distraction, wasted time, and disappointment. This is challenging. As I prepared this, I felt deeply challenged to simplify, to strip back, to be okay with what is knowing that he's on the throne, knowing that he knows what I need. You see, there is this disquiet in me, this constant rumbling, this tension of, well, if I just got that thing, maybe I'd feel okay. If I just achieved that goal, maybe I'd feel okay. If I just lost 10 more pounds, if I just made 10 more grand, if I just had the better, insert word, But it's good. He's calling us to the best way. Jesus doesn't just call us to hard things because he wants to drag us over the coals. He is calling us to be the optimum, pinnacle expression of what we've been created to be. So we can agree that contentment is a very good thing. It's something that we want. And it's something that we work towards as followers of Jesus. Charles Spurgeon says this about contentment. Ah, <laughs> I love that that's included. Ah, you will never have enough. Ah, you will never have enough until you get Christ. But when you have him, you will be full to the brim. Contentment is the peculiar jewel of the beloved of the Lord Jesus. This beautiful promise that in him there is contentment, there is satisfaction, there is 
this beautiful way of being. So let's look at what Paul has to say, because Paul, in my opinion, is a master of contentment. But how did he get there? What can we take and learn from his life and from his teachings as to get to contentment? We agree, it's a good thing. We want it. How do we get there? And Paul says in verse 10, I have learned to be content. So let's camp out here a little bit around this word learned. It's an easily overlooked word because you read that sentence and I would say most of us focus on the word content. But learned is important because Paul didn't just suddenly become utterly content in all situations. This was something he learned, implying intentionality, acceptance of his ignorance. If you need to learn something, it means you don't know yet. And there's a humility that comes with that. A submission to the process knowing that this is going to be a journey of progressive growth, knowledge, experience that are gained over time. Paul's walk happened over decades. His conversion was quick and intense. He's blinded on the road to Damascus. He's led there by his servants. And three days later, he's with the Christians his sight has been restored, and he's ushered into the kingdom of God. That happened fast and hard. But he then walked it out over a course of decades. This next slide, and I borrowed this from somewhere else, I didn't make it, but this is a timeline of Paul's ministry. And so we can see here on the far left, this is his conversion in around AD 35. Historians believe that he was born at a similar time to Jesus, if not just a little bit before. And so at the time of his conversion, he would have been around 35, 40 years old. And from there to this next, if you hit the next um, clicker, that is where he's written the book of Philippians, 30 years later. And there's this huge three-decade gap, and he is now approaching his 60s as we read Philippians. Can we agree, looking at what he's done, all of these apostolic journeys, all the churches planted, all the experiences he's had, he has this massive library of life experience under his belt. And I find that really, really encouraging because when I read the words of Paul in Philippians, for me, I feel like he is a superstar Christian. He's like a pro-athlete version of Christianity. And sometimes I read it and I'm just like, how the heck am I going to ever attain to this guy's level? Well, he'd been doing it for 30 years. So give yourself some slack there, Stu. Sometimes I measure myself in hours, days, weeks, when this is really a decades game. God's not in a rush. He faithfully directs and he will make micro course corrections all the time, calling you, shepherding you, gently leading you toward the end that he has in mind for you. Trust that process. Trust in him. And it strikes me that it's not just the experience that we can see on the screen, but from there, there's a whole 35 to 40 years that's not on the screen of his prior to conversion life, where he was a Jew of Jews. And he went through a robust 
Growing up and education, discipline, passion for the Lord, discipleship to rabbis, submission to the process. And if you'll let him, and if you'll give it to him, God will use all of your story for his good. Don't underestimate his ability to take any and every aspect of what you have experienced in him or before him and use it and weave it into your unique calling. I have learned, Paul says. And the Greek word that he uses here is manthano, and it is akin and connected to a word mathetes, which means a disciple. And the idea is that it's about learning key facts, gaining fact knowledge as someone who learns from experience, often with the implication of reflection. I have come to realize, I have learned to be content. And this gets me thinking about the not so glamorous and somewhat under-promoted idea of the long game Christian life. And me and Dana have been talking about this a little bit, this unhealthy sense of urgency that permeates our culture. There's always something to do, somewhere to be, some goal to reach, someone to respond to. And thanks to our pocket masters here continually cattle driving us toward whatever they decide we should be doing, we're distracted. We are in overdrive. And within the church, we see those who walk away from faith saying, well, it just didn't work for me. I have a friend who walked away from faith, and when I asked him why, he said, oh, I gave it the old college try, but it just didn't work for me. And was it that, I have to wonder, was it that it didn't work for him, or that he wasn't willing to work for it? And not in an employment sense, but in an effort sense. I have to wonder... Was it that God didn't meet his expectations or that his expectations were tragically misplaced? Was it less about God's inability to show up in his life and more about his inability to see it because he was looking for the wrong things in the wrong places and on the wrong timeline? So think about this. We can go to the next slide. In almost every other area of life, we are comfortable with the concept and the process of learning. If you want to become a surgeon, you know right up front that is a long journey. And I know if I want to be a surgeon that I am going to submit to years and years of study and training and shadowing and practicing. And the average surgeon journey, Austin, you can fact check me here, is 13 years, four-year bachelor, four-year medical, minimum five-year residency, and if I join up with the end in mind of being a surgeon, I'm under no illusions. I know, I expect, I'm fully comfortable with a structured journey where we start at point A and we end at point Z and we stop at every letter along the way and we learn a little bit. Praise God that they don't throw second-week students into brain surgery, right? Because there'd be a lot of messed-up people out there. There's no expectation that when you're even just a couple years in, that you're going to be put in. 
No one's going to say, all right, man, you're like a couple years into this. Get out there, put your scrubs on. You're going to do open heart surgery. That would be horrifying. That would be terrifying. We know that that's not going to happen. Imagine if you wanted to be a pro athlete. You don't get to this level overnight. It's not quick. It's not easy. You start in the driveway with your dad or your brother or your friends, and there's probably hundreds, maybe even thousands of hours spent in this nothing but fun stage developing key skills. Then you hit high school and college, and even then, if you're a promising athlete, no one is expecting you to go from zero to hero. Everyone understands you need to work, you need to sweat, you need to hurt, you need to fight, you need to toil and labor and dream and plan and strategize. You're going to join a team and do this with other people. You are going to get coaching and have someone speak into your life. You're going to get physical therapy. You're going to do conditioning. You're going to watch tapes. You're going to study other teams' strategies and plays. You are going to invest a considerable amount of time and effort into the process. So why are we confused, disoriented, disappointed, angry, when we come and give God our two hours a week of half-hearted, casual attention, and then we don't see much spiritual growth, change, or breakthrough. This is sad stew here. Just really struggling. <laughs> Just going through another desert season. I've been there. I'm going to be straight up with you. I have been there where this was hard and I was just giving it my two hours, maybe two and a half if the Lord was lucky, of casual half-hearted service. It's like this funny story where a gentleman joins the gym and then six months later he calls up furious and he says, I need to speak to a manager. Manager gets on the line and he says, look here, I joined your gym six months ago. I am paying good money for this service. I haven't lost a pound. I haven't seen any fitness gains. <laughs> and the manager says, I'm so, so sorry, sir. This is very unusual. I understand your frustration. I'd love to help sort this out. May I ask how often you've been coming in and working out? Are there any particular classes that you've been coming to that you're unhappy with or programs or machines that you've been using that, that haven't been working for you? Machines that I've been using? You want me to come and work out? I am paying you for this gym membership and I expect results. You can see where this conversation is headed. That was me earlier today. <laughs> Just working on biceps, 1,001, 1,002. Joining the gym is an excellent step. It's huge. It means that you believe that you can work out. It shows that you want more for yourself. It's actually a step of faith. But just because you joined does not mean you're getting fit. Don't be the angry caller. Don't just join the gym Never go and then expect results. That's not how it happens. That is not how you learn. Next slide. What an inspiration. In the same way that a gym with all its machines, instructors, classes, and programs exists to empower you to work out but is utterly unable to do the work for you, the church is here to empower you 
to work out your salvation, but is utterly unable to do the work for you. You need to get stuck in. If you want this extraordinary life in Christ, you need to get stuck in. And as any trainer worth his weight will tell you, slow and steady is the way to go. Do you need to hear this today? Next slide. Do you need help reframing your perspective and expectation, realizing that discipleship to Jesus is a lifelong journey? Have you been discouraged by how slow transformation is? Maybe you've set some unrealistic expectations for yourself. It's okay. Spiritual development does not happen overnight. Paul himself says, I have learned. And there's freedom in that. There's comfort in that. Just as I know, as a second year medical student, I'm not going to be thrown into a brain surgery. There is comfort in this process. If you are a new believer, we're not going to ask you to preach. You're not going to be... God, God might actually have some tricks up his sleeve. I shouldn't speak for him. He might ask you to do some radical stuff. But in general, Christian development is a slow, steady, long game thing. Are you a new believer? Is prayer uncomfortable for you? That is okay. Of course it is. It's like throwing a large inflated piece of orange rubber at a hole that's suspended 10 feet in the air. When you do it for the first time, it's basketball, by the way. When you do it for the first time, it's weird. You're like, I how, do, how do I do this again? The first time you ever throw a basketball at a hoop, you feel uncomfortable. You feel stupid. And then you learn. Are you a new believer? Are you wrestling with reading your Bible? Actually, you don't have to be a new believer. I wrestle with that. Good. Welcome to the journey. We have all been there, wrestling with the basics. I'm there regularly. Please factor in that this is the most profound and densely packed textbook ever compiled. You are not going to get this book in a week. You are not going to get this book in a month or even a year. You need help. You need community, and you have to take it one day at a time, but you have to do the work. So settle in and take it one step at a time, realizing that you need to participate in the process. You need to study. You need to practice. You need to learn. Be okay. Be content with where you are. And then go on the journey. So Paul says, I have learned and to me, there's these three things. That means intentionality. It's a choosing. It's a decision of his will to submit and accept a process. This doesn't happen at once. It's a process, and that growth will come over time. Henry Nouwen says, Our lives are not problems to be solved, but journeys to be taken with Jesus as our friend and finest guide. Which journey can begin and immediately you reach the goal? Which journey is without twists, turns, ups, downs, hardships, and happinesses? This, discipleship to Jesus, growth as a community of believers, is a journey. 
let's get comfortable, dare even to enjoy this process of learning. I want to approach Jesus and this life with him with a long game mentality and the end in mind. And speaking of that end, you're welcome. This is old man stew. I, I took face app and I took a picture of myself and then aged me, whatever, 50 years. <laughs> oh, that's what she has to look forward to. <laughs> so here's old man stew. Despite his grumpy looking face, he is a sweet, humble, gentle, but fiercely full of faith old man who is still deeply in love with Jesus and the church, deeply in love with his wife, proud of his godly children, and proud of the Christ-centric legacy that he is leaving behind after living a life of faith. And if that, maybe a slightly happier version of that, is my goal, then working backwards from that old man who's still in love with Jesus and in love with the church and hasn't burned out and hasn't got over it and hasn't, you know, gone veered off the path, then I want to construct systems for spiritual development that will facilitate and enable and empower healthy and sustainable growth over a long period of time. I want to grow from strength to strength. I want to go from infancy to maturity in my faith. I want to accept where I am now and eagerly look and work towards where I want to be and where I will be one day with Jesus. As an added bonus, the next slide is David Vespelar aged. <laughs> And the next slide is me as a baby, then aged. It's like an a, a inception moment. Side note, I look exactly like my grandmother. <laughs> so Paul says, next slide, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I love how his I know, I know what it is communicates the sense of being seasoned, i.e. I've been there. I've experienced these things. And he says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or I'm hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or in want. What is the secret, Paul? Tell us your secret. He does in the next line. He really doesn't make you wait long at all. The secret to contentment is this. I can do all this or all things through him, through Christ, who gives me strength. Now, if we're ranking scriptures that get taken out of context, this one's way up there. And I'm pretty sure that this particular verse has been used for all sorts of nonsense that it shouldn't have been. What is Paul saying here? I can do all this. In some translations it says, I can do all things. Can Paul jump over the moon because of the power of Christ? Can he bench press a million pounds? Can he run a two minute mile? Can he hang from cliffs with one hand? Wow found this little nugget this afternoon hiding out on Google Images. 
Mm. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> How many bets do we have that the, the ground was like 10 inches below his feet? You know, and he's just like, ah, I can do all things through Christ. God is not promising to grant us superhuman ability to accomplish anything that we want or can imagine without any regard to his interests. I've always known this verse as I can do all things, and I've always thought of it, all things through Christ who strengthens me, and I've always thought of it as kind of a standalone verse. In fact, it helped me through some really tough times when I was a kid and I was being bullied and I was being dropped off from school and I was crying and my mom said, son, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And I understood that it was Jesus that I had to draw on to get through the difficulty of going into that environment that I hated so much. So I got it. But as I was preparing this, the NIV translation says, I can do all this. And I thought, that's an interesting differentiation. What's all this? And the key to the proper understanding of the verse is in the context, i.e. all that has come before it. It's everything that he's just told us. So let's remember, what is all this that he can do through Christ? To be in need, to have plenty, to be content in every situation, whether I'm well-fed or I'm hungry, whether I have plenty or whether I'm in want. Next click, I can do all this. Whoa, look at that effect. I just threw some nuggets in there to just keep you guys awake. I was really inspired by um, Keynote. <laughs> um, Ishmael, I hope you're appreciating this. Me, I actually run a design agency, so just, I, I do have good taste. It's just fun. Anyway. You can click one more time. The all this is, see that? Wow. Let's go. All right, thanks guys. Have a good evening. Um, the all this is the stuff that Paul's talked about through this letter, through other letters. We can chuck in there the second Corinthians of the shipwrecking and the whipping and the snake bites and the almost drowning, being flogged, being publicly shamed, being imprisoned for years. All of those things. That's what he's talking about. And I think that this statement is much less a magical promise of God for us nice Christians to leverage in the pursuit of our ideal lives and far more the testimony of God's unfailing faithfulness to a man who had seen him come through in some incredible ways. And if there is a promise for us to garner from these words, it's something more along the lines of God is faithful to supply everything you need to accomplish everything he's calling you to. I love how Eugene Peterson puts this in the message, or as I've uh, affectionately coined, next slide, the MSG version, because it just has extra flavor. Whatever I have, it, seriously, it says MSG if you're like in your Bible app, so. There weren't enough laughs, so <laughs> I, don't know if it, I don't know if it landed, you know. Whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. And it feels like it's more about righteous resilience and less about a grabby, arrogant, self-entitled, capitalistic brand slogan. I can do whatever I want in Jesus because he gives me strength. This is the anthem of a man deeply satisfied in Jesus 
regardless of his external situations. We can have absolute certainty. Go to the next slide. That he will faithfully underwrite the kingdom assignment that he's created, designed, shaped, and prepared you for. In my study Bible, and we'll come down to land with these thoughts. Quick shout out to the study Bible. Next screen, there it is on Amazon if you want to purchase it. Take a little snap on your phone. $31, dang, that's a deal. That's the best $31 you will ever spend in your life. This little study Bible has changed my life and it's just packed full of goodies. In fact, if you get this and you read it, you will, uh, you'll see where I get 70% of my sermon notes from. So, <laughs> I'm just saying, get a study Bible. Here's a little preview of its goodness. It says this in response and in the notes to the section that we're looking at. Paul was content because he could see life from God's point of view. He focused on what he was supposed to do and not what he felt he should have. Paul had his priorities straight and he was grateful for everything that God had given him. Paul had detached himself from the non-essential so that he could concentrate on the eternal. And when I read that last two lines, it hit me. And immediately this question ran through my mind, how much of my life is attached to the non-essential? How much time and money do I spend on non-essentials? And that's not in a judgmental, legalistic, heavy way because that's not what Christianity is. This is an invitation from Jesus into better, into more. You want to run after the stuff? It's not going to satisfy you. Take it from a guy who had all of it, King Solomon. It doesn't satisfy. It's a never-ending pit. But this invitation from Jesus is one into deeper joy, deeper satisfaction, security, a sense of ongoing, despite the odds, peace, contentment, fruitfulness. Side note, if Paul was alive today and wanted to be a little entrepreneurial and make some money, he could have crushed it because America alone spent in 2021 $11.5 billion on the self-help industry. And in 2024, they predict that to go up to $14 billion. And what are all those books and programs and gurus, what are they all pointing at? Contentment. Here it is for $31.99 on Amazon. <laughs> Paul was a man who took up that invitation from Jesus, the invitation to an extraordinary life. And when you have that, the extraordinary life, as the goal, it's no longer about adherence to the rules for the rules' sake. It's not about doing what you should to be a good Christian. It becomes a conversation of desire as you lay down your earthly desire for all those things and you allow him to ignite his eternal desire. There's this constant invitation ringing out who will detach themselves from the non-essential and who will concentrate on the eternal. Who will take up my vision for their lives? And we see in Paul in Philippians 1.20, he says, I eagerly expect Remember when we spoke through that, it's this word picture of straining your head forward to win a race. That is passion language. That's not like, oh, I should, I really should. It's going to be great. 
He's like, I can't wait to live is Christ, to die is gain. That is passionate language. He says in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. I am pursuing Jesus because I want what he offers me. I have seen a glimpse of the eternal, of what that contentment in him means and what it can be, and I want it, and I want more of it. I want to go all chips in on God's plan for my life, and I'm happy to submit to his process. I know that he is faithful. I know that he will never leave me as scripture promises, and that he will bring to completion in me everything that he started. This is a long game, folks. Let's stop worrying about the short sprints and start getting into the mindset of lifelong faithful discipleship to Jesus, going from strength to strength, one foot in front of the other, training, apprenticing, discipling. Do you know that we are all called to disciple people? Not just me, not just Dana, not just Chris, you and you and you and you. My paycheck is not signed by this church. I don't work here. I am a volunteer leader and I give up scores of my hours to be here to minister, but this is not my job. And so just because your paycheck is being paid by someone else out there, it doesn't mean that you are not a full-time minister because Jesus calls each and every one of us in this room to be disciples. He doesn't have a a 20-hour-a-month package or a a 40-hour-a-month package. He doesn't have the gold, bronze, and silver, and gold tears. He says, come and follow me. Lay it down. And be content with where you're at i.e. stop chasing after the stuff. You're not going to be satisfied in that stuff. Come and be satisfied in me. And I will take you on on an adventure and a journey into a life that is compelling beyond your wildest dreams, that is blessed beyond your wildest dreams. In me there is contentment and in me alone. In me there is satisfaction and in me alone. There's some more stuff at the, in the rest of this scripture, but unfortunately, we don't have time to get to it. Um, the closing of Philippians, Paul thanks them again. I'll just breeze through it. He thanks them again for their gift. They were generous. He says, I didn't want or need your gift, but I do appreciate it. And what I'm excited about is that your gift is now accredited to you in your eternal account of faith. He says that your gift was a fragrant and pleasing offering, pleasing to God, an acceptable sacrifice. He says, God will meet your needs. This principle, this biblical financial principle, if you are generous, if you give, you will be blessed. And then he says, greet all people, greet all the people, my brothers and sisters, I love that he says, he mentions those, all those who belong to Caesar's household. Do you remember the first preach that I did on Philippians where he was chained to the Roman guards? That's who he's talking about. 
He's just exuding the gospel to these people in prison, in chains, under house arrest, when he's free. He's just, people are looking at him going, how is this man happy? What on earth is going on? They're jailed and they're in the prison and they're singing worship songs? Something's cuckoo in these guys' heads or they've locked into the source of life and they know something we don't know. So he's converted a whole bunch of Caesar's household that are now believers in Jesus. And then he just lays on the secret sauce at the end and he says, the grace of the Lord be with you and be with your spirit. And it's in the grace of God that all of this happens. It's because God is gracious. It's because God is kind. It's because God was willing to take us where we were and to cover all of our shortcomings and our failings and bring us into right relationship with him by his generosity, by his grace. That's the secret sauce to all of this. Contentment is available in Christ. And I think that it's a beautiful goal, but it's a journey. Get in the gym. That's it.